Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello. I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast, done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. London has always been a galvanizing factor for the South Asian community, whether due to the machinations of empire, the need to make a living, or the drive for higher education. South Asians make up the largest group of foreign-born individuals in London, and South Asian politicians in the UK cross the political divide from Rishi Sunak and Priti Patel to Sadiq Khan. Many of India and Pakistan's most important historical figures also passed through London. Gandhi, Nehru, Jinnah, Bose all lived and worked in London. The head of the British Empire was a location for much of the debate and activism that drove India's independence movement. They've been a part of London's community for centuries, a point made clear in Indians in London from the birth of the East India Company to independent India by Arup K. Chatterjee. Across almost half a millennium, Chatterjee tells the stories of the South Asians that traveled to London, poor and rich, those who stayed and those who went back to change the region's politics forever. Arup K. Chatterjee is also a professor at O.P. Jindal Global University. He is the founding chief editor of Cold Noon, International Journal of Travel Writing and Traveling Cultures, which he ran from 2011 to 2018. He has authored The Purveyors of Destiny, a cultural biography of the Indian Railways, The Great Indian Railways, and the forthcoming The Great Indian Railway Saga, besides being the author of over 70 articles and academic papers in national and international vacations. Today, Arup and I talk about the almost four centuries worth of South Asians that traveled to London, what brought them there, and how they may have changed South Asia when they returned. So, Arup, thank you so much for joining me on the Asian Books podcast. So, the first thing that struck me about your book is how expansive it is. You know, Indians have been in London for a long time. I guess, how long have Indians been traveling to London? And at least in the very early days, what first brought them to the city? Uh, thank you, Nicholas. What a pleasure to join you for ARB. It's, uh, uh, it's a privilege to have a platform like yours to talk about Indians in London. And, uh, well, it's a tricky question, really, because uh, the words like um, India and, uh, to some extent, uh, 
um, even South Asia, uh, are not really, they don't have a very stable geopolitical signification as much as we would like to think. These are relatively recent uh, linguistic uh, inventions or at least uh, uh, standards that we've been maintaining in the 20th uh, and the 21st century, but even about 100 years ago, uh, the word Indian uh, did not have the kinds of meanings that uh, it seems to have today, and South Asian uh, was uh, still in the making. Uh, so to answer your question, pretending as if uh, India was one uh, unified whole uh, back in the 16th and the 17th century, I, I, I'd like to uh, uh, take you back to 1616, when the first... Uh, Indian baptism happened in London. That is to say, the first Indian uh, was baptized in London, and his name was Peter Pope. He was a lad from Bengal, and uh, this incident is one possible testimony that we have of how Indians have lived and died in London since before the birth of Shakespeare. So you read the title of my book, and it says, From the Birth of the East India Company, to independent India, but if you notice, it is these are also the dates uh, uh, when Shakespeare was born, lived, and he wrote until the time uh, Sir Winston Churchill was the Prime Minister of Britain. So, so these are the two great uh, literary giants who shaped uh, uh, British culture, among many others. And uh, one of my uh, intentions was also to pay uh, a tribute to them. Not that I am not critical of Churchill and uh, Shakespeare, uh, but nonetheless, they rule uh, the, the British cultural imagination so much that uh, I thought it was uh, opposite to pay that tribute to them. Anyhow, so to, to take you back to Peter Pope. So he was baptized in London on 22nd December, the winter solstice of 1616. And this is the same year that William Shakespeare died. So I in my book, I try to give an affective testimony from history, where, wherein I try to invite readers into the, the birth of a new era. So the baptism of Peter Pope is almost like the rebirth of an Indian in London. And I'll come to the political and cultural significance of that phrase, this, this political and this symbolic rebirth of an Indian in London, perhaps towards the end of my talk. But your question is, since when did Indians actually travel to London and why? Now, we have evidence of someone called Salaman Noor, or uh, the anglicized name of Suleiman Noor, who was, um, uh, who was uh, buried at St. Margaret's uh, in Westminster on 22nd March 1515. And we have uh, a similar you know, evidence uh, of uh, someone called Samuel Mansoor, who married Jane Johnson at St. Nicholas Church in Deptford on December 28, 1613. So between uh, roughly the, the late 16th century and uh, the, the, the uh, 1650s or 1660s, we have evidence of about 26 uh, parish church records, whether these are baptisms or burials, containing specifically Indian names. Some of those might be um, uh, people from the Caribbean islands or Africa, uh, but then if we want to count all the black names and Indian names and South Asian names, then I think the list goes beyond 50 or 60. So if, anyhow, my point is if we get, if we are able to have about two dozen of these, you know, burial or baptism records, then common sense suggests that there were 
hundreds of Indians in London around this time. They were predominantly Laskars uh, and some of them were also being brought to London as servants or specifically for the purpose of being um, well baptized for evangelical purpose like Peter Pope was. So Peter Pope was uh, brought to London by one Captain Best of the East India Company and he, he was handed over to a Reverend uh, Patrick Copland who was a chaplain in Masuli Patnam uh, of, uh, of the company. Now the, the phase uh, of the last years of, of, of Shakespeare's career uh, when we have uh, gems like uh, towards the late 16th century we have uh, A Midsummer Night's Dream which uh, interestingly contains an Indian character uh, or, or the reference to an Indian character and what was once allegedly his last play that is The Tempest uh, in that play Caliban is referred to as an Indian, an Indian fish. So it's very interesting that although Caliban is not geopolitically an Indian character, and yet that cultural uh, significance of India, uh, of the, 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 the commercial importance of India, is beginning to become mainstream in the British consciousness. So, so it's 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 quite interesting that uh, uh, that we have. Uh, these little, you know, snippets of India in, in, in William Shakespeare, and that itself is evidence that uh, Britain was getting accustomed, albeit slightly uneasily, to the reality of India and the traffic of Indians. Indians have been traveling to Europe since the 10th or the 11th century, at least, if not earlier. But I, because I have a particular, you know, notion of creating a new Genesis myth. Uh, which, which combines these two geopolitically discrete lands. One is London and the other is India. And I see a, a bridge somewhere in between. And for that history, my Genesis myth would be Peter Pope, the lad from Bengal, who was uh, baptized in 1616. But like I said, since the foundation of the East India Company, it becomes easier for, for us to imagine uh, how a traffic of Indians would have been facilitated by the spice trade. And uh, these Laskars were generally hired from Madras, Masuli Patnam, Surat, Bengal, uh, by the East India Company officials. Of course, they had to pass through middlemen. And uh, these middlemen would then uh, be in charge of the Laskars coming to London. And this informal process continued till uh, the early 19th century, sometime during the 1830s when the navigation acts and the Laskar laws were amended. But uh, until then, the Laskars had to live in miserable conditions. Very often, they jumped ships. So uh, the, well, what should I say? We, we very often tend to think that the first wave of South Asian immigration happened during the 1960s, or the Indians and the Pakistanis and the Bangladeshis largely came to Britain as the two-penny generation during the Hatcherite regime. But honestly, truth be told, this tradition goes back to Laskars coming from India in, in search of livelihood and some of them never returning and some of them uh, not managing to return because they simply, uh, they simply vanished from the records. Uh, many of them were simply hanged uh, or, or, or killed by mobs. Uh, and, and those who returned, uh, well, I, I don't think it's possible to trace them either uh, until the birth of... Uh, uh, the the British administration in India were well, late in the in the 18th century in the in the late 18th century. 
So uh, a, a simple answer to your question would be since the time of Akbar uh, in the 16th century, I think uh, Indians began uh, becoming familiar with the name of London. And uh, by the end of the 16th century, did we have evidence that they were traveling to London. And around the 17th century, the Lascars traveling to London uh, lived in quite miserable conditions. There, there was uh, racism all, all around. But a lot of that, and this is the silver lining, did begin to change, ironically, after the Battle of Plassey and after the birth of the Hastings administration in Bengal. I'm not vindicating Hastings or the East India Company or that infamous uh, uh, victory at, at, at Plassey. It's, it's, uh, I loathe calling it a victory, but whatever. So I'm not, this is not a vindication, but ironically, after the establishment of the Hastings administration in Bengal in the 1770s and 1780s, Indians traveling to London and Britain started feeling much more equal than before. And in many ways, I find the echoes of that very innocent lamb, Peter Pope, who could not speak for himself. I mean, it's more, more of a spectacle that people witness at Penchurch Street on that winter solstice afternoon of 22nd December uh, 1616, because Peter was simply you know, par paraded in front of uh, uh, the, the aldermen of the East India Company, the other officials, King James, incidentally chose his uh, his name and the Arch Archbishop of Canterbury blessed him. But all that aside, Peter himself could not tell his tale. But in about 150 years, many, many Indian travelers would, would start uh, coming to London and they, they had a voice. Some of them wrote in English, quite a few did not, but they were not afraid to exercise uh, their democratic voice. So I hope that uh, uh, answers your question if I was not all over the place. Well, I mean, your, your, your book covers such a long period of time. Um, and there's so much that I'm sure we're not going to, be able to get to uh, in our in our interview today. But I did want to talk about so you start the book kind of not with Peter Pope, but actually with a discussion of food. Um, the, you know, basically all the, all the Indian restaurants that are, that are in London today, um, and their struggles in recent decades, foods actually, I think quite a, quite a, it's, it's one of the trend lines with the book. I mean, several of the Indians that travel to London become celebrity chefs. Um, the idea of Indian food is, uh, pretty popular, I think in, in London throughout the history of the book. One funny anecdote I saw was that it made its all made its way all the way to Boston, where they had lobster curry. Um, but I guess, kind of, what is it about Indian food that makes it a good starting point for a longer history book of Indians in London? Well, allow me to refer to a concept that I've coined, and one wouldn't necessarily find this in Indians in London, because uh, um, this is a very academic concept. Uh, that being. Uh, of gastromythology, and I'll, I'll uh, briefly uh, explain what it means. Uh, food contains metaphors of politics, of social realities, of historical realities that we very often tend not to question that have become part of our everyday and that in many ways govern our everyday. We are comfortable sharing food and we are comfortable amidst those people whom we can share our food with. Food is a commercial enterprise, it's a creative enterprise, but it is also a political enterprise and it therefore was a metaphor for me to address several issues, one of them being of authenticity and uh, 
originality and provenance and so on, which are very contested issues in, uh, in, in larger domains. In, 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 in the domain of food, we don't necessarily argue about provenance and authenticity as much as we would about, let's say, uh, things like racial purity and, and cultural authenticity, uh, which uh, very often define governments and, and government policies. So I was, uh, you might be surprised to hear, very traumatized by Brexit. And uh, I don't mean that as a self-fashioning statement. Brexit need not necessarily have influenced me because I was not in the geographical territory called London when the Brexit uh, affair took off. Yes, I was uh, uh, visiting London on a couple of occasions when the uh, planning was still on and it was towards the last uh, stages uh, before before Brexit actually happened. But what really traumatized me was how much of history was being overlooked and how much of history was, was, was being sugar-coated. For example, one of the uh, uh, rhetorical uh, you know, devices uh, that uh, one of the uh, parties in, in Britain adopted was that they, so they, they, they campaigned uh, before South Asian restauranteurs and told them that they'll be given uh, uh, visas or their uh, uh, relations in Bangladesh and India and Pakistan would be given uh, visas relatively more easily and the traffic from South Asia would be uh, relatively more seamless after Brexit. So, so the curry house uh, owners were, were shown that carrot and uh, it is said, uh, I, I, I live in India so I don't know the ground reality but from what I hear and from what my sources in Britain tell me that, that many of these South Asian restauranteurs were, were galvanized by that rhetoric and they voted for that particular party and they, they, uh, they essentially voted for Brexit which uh, I, I wouldn't say causally has led to uh, the decline of South Asian restaurants, but there's definitely a correlation. That is to say, the the, the upper end of the South Asian restaurants in London, the elites, uh, 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 the Veeraswamis, for example, and this is not anything against the Veeraswamis, are thriving. The elite restaurants are thriving in London, whereas the curry houses of Brick Lane and, uh, you know, the other... Uh, localities such as Hillingdon, uh, Tooting, West Ham, etc., uh, East Ham, they have, uh, they have, uh, they, they are stunned because the, the clients have stopped walking into their restaurants, their uh, posterity refuses to go into the restaurant-tearing business, there, there aren't enough uh, restaurant-tearing colleges in London. So, you, you see, Nicholas, what I'm suggesting is not really a crisis in food, but also a crisis in cultures and in history, because for a very, very long time, curry uh, was uh, designated as the national dish of Britain, uh, which is for about 30 or 40 odd years. But after 2015 or 2016, and especially after the, the pandemic, uh, it doesn't seem like the national dish anymore. And certainly those curry houses of the, of the down market uh, lanes don't necessarily look like the curry capitals of London or Britain. So I saw a metaphor of the declining communal harmony that India was once known for. Many people on the right of politics, uh, whether in the United States or United Kingdom or India, would like to think that India and South Asia was never a peaceful place, that we did not have harmonious mythologies. But there is tremendous evidence and evidence springing from Indians in London or people who 
who, who learned their trade of freedom, their trade of liberty in London, who created a harmonious mythology. And that was going down the drain. And, I, and that was becoming very oppressive for me, which is why I had to begin my introduction with that metaphor of Indian food and, and uh, all that in the midst of Brexit. So let's get back to the history. Um, and let's start kind of with, like, say, the, the, you can call it the first 100, 200 years of, of, of Indian London, where, you know, obviously there's the East India Company, there's people being brought over to kind of work as part of the company to help manage, I guess, the company's affairs in India from London. Um, there's events around the Great Fire. I wonder if Mike have talked through what the Indian community was like in, let's say, the first in in the in the first few centuries of the of the Indian community in London. So let me also address why 17th century and and about 50 years after the baptism of uh, Peter Pope is such a key uh, phase in the history of this uh, new cultural or emotional geography that I'm talking about. You may call it uh, Londonistan, for lack of a better word, uh, although I know Londonistan has uh, different associations. But let us call this emotional geography by that name for, for a little while. And in, in, in the history of this new cultural and emotional geography, 1666 is a very key year. The Annus Mirabilis or Horribilis, the Great Fire of London happens and when London is rebuilt, 1667 onwards, uh, they issue a coal tax, which is uh, miserably uh, a failure when it comes to recouping the funds to rebuild London. So a lot of the funds are supplied by the East India Company. King Charles II is continuously bribed. The London Corporation is continuously uh, bankrupt. So it is bankrolled by the East India Company in exchange for uh, uh, the monopolies that the monarchy gives uh, for it in, in places like Bombay and, and the south of India. So the bankrolling of the rebuilding process of London happens thanks to the East India Company. And after that, since 1750s, you know, after the Carnatic Wars that happened sometime during the 1740s uh, between Britain and France in India, so they were finding new fronts to have the Seven Years' War. After that, the Battle of Plassey, 1757 and 1764, the Battle of Buxar, when the Diwani of Bengal is, is given to the British, what happens is many delegates, diplomats and pleasure seekers or, or simply you know, travelers start uh, visiting London. Uh, one of them is Joseph Amin, who is a very interesting name, Armenian from Calcutta, who visits London and becomes a friend of Edmund Burke in the 1750s. Uh, there is... Um, uh, Mirza Abu Talib, uh, and uh, there is that all-famous Sheikh Dean Muhammad, who comes to London as a Lasker. And I think we start finding the 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 roots, the visible roots of an Indian community with the advent of Sheikh Dean Muhammad, because he builds that all-famous Hindustani coffee house on uh, uh, on Portman Square uh, near Baker Street, and. Uh, I, and this Hindustani coffee house caters to a community called Anglo-Indians. Now, Anglo-Indians is a very vague term because in India today, Anglo-Indians mean uh, those um, uh, uh, you know, people who trace their lineage back to the Portuguese or 
the British or the, the Danish even, some of them, who, uh, uh, who are a very, very, very small minority in India. But Anglo-Indians in the early 19th century used to mean people who've returned from India, the colonials. But it also implied people who had come to London from India and were temporarily staying there. So it is difficult to uh, differentiate between the kinds of Anglo-Indians that Hindustani coffee house served, but predominantly it was the elite nabobs. Uh, and, uh, and it is around this time that Indian ayahs start coming to uh, London very, very frequently. So since the early 19th century, and quite a few uh, Indian uh, mistresses or Indian wives of colonial sahibs are also brought to, to London. They, they travel to London, some of them um, stay back. Uh, there are examples of women getting divorced uh, from their husbands and then going on to live in, uh, in London, Sussex or other parts of Britain. Uh, a, a very solitary life, but nonetheless on some pension, some funds from friends. Uh, so this is, this is typically the birth of the Indian community uh, in, in London. And in 1830, uh, when Raja Rammohan Roy uh, visits London, he sows the seeds of an Indian spiritual consciousness in London, which you know, which leads to the arrival of people like Keshav Chandra Sen in 1870, Swami Vivekanand in 1895, and uh, of course, in between that, we also have the the making of uh, M K Gandhi, who spent th three years in London between 1888 and 1891 as a law student, but he was also a spiritual leader in a manner of speaking. The Theosophists, who were also into spirituality and uh, Indian politics at the same time. These various spiritual and political ideologies were pushing to the center of London a consciousness about India. And increasingly after 1857, the ayahs, the Laskars, the students, who we find uh, much more in number after the 1860s, after the uh, institution of the civil service examinations, and Indian lawyers, this community of Indians started numbering something between 5 and 12,000 people by the end of the 19th century. This is a daunting number because this number of Indians, although not politi politically organized, although not culturally recognized in, in the same terms, were, were proportionately more than the number of uh, Britons in India. If you compare the ratio of Indians to uh, Britons in Britain and Britons to Indians in India. That is to say, if uh, uh, there are, uh, uh, you know, the, the, if there's one uh, Britain per 10,000 Indians in India, there are more than one Indians per 10,000 Britons in Britain, if that makes sense to you. However, uh, you might say that I'm trying to dramatize a little more, but then that's, that's just the difference uh, of, of political power that these people wielded. Indians were not recognized as a cultural force uh, until the end of the 19th century. And even then, they were taken for their you know, great uh, spiritual, uh, spiritual tradition, thanks to Swami Vivekananda and, and Max Muller, and not necessarily for their numbers in, in Britain. So I wonder if that uh, answers your question. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and 6-1 since that matters and 
What do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Well, then let's kind of move into kind of the, the, the next stage of this, which, um, you know, one of the things that, you know, again, struck me in reading the book was, um, it seems like just about every, I, I, I don't want to say every, because that'll get me in trouble, but it seems like a lot of the, the, the most prominent members of Indy's independence movement um, spend time in London. Uh, Gandhi spends time there, Nehru spends time there, Jenna and Bose spend time there. Uh, and they're just the most famous. You know, obviously those who helped launch the Indian independence movement um, were in London as well. So I guess what, what role did London and the Indian community in London play in fostering the Indian independence movement? So London has been, London was uh, uh, created as a global symbol of uh, uh, empire building in the 19th century. And it was done very, very self-consciously. Victorian Britain uh, mobilized London, not simply as a, uh, you know, as a, as, a, as a name or an image, but a very powerful system of signs that could... Uh, that could that could attract that could uh, help people fantasize about this uh, illustrious city where uh, you have electricity where you have the happy family with all the pairs and uh, uh, the UKTC the United Kingdom Tea Company uh, advertisements uh, and uh, the the omnibuses and the railways and all this was I have to admit quite attractive for Indian travelers specifically around the time of the Indian, the colonial Indian exhibition of 1886, when the great um, grand tour of Indians uh, to Britain and and the rest of Europe actually began. And many Indians, I'll take a few names, for example, Trilokyanath Mukhopadhyay, Lala Bajnath, uh, T.D. Pandian, etc. These were travelers who visited London and very self-confidently began uh, writing travelogues for readers back home so that they could then feel confident in imagining London. And uh, you mentioned Gandhi and, and Jinnah. Now, they were almost contemporaries because uh, Gandhi came to London in the late 1880s, Jinnah in the early 1890s. And uh, Gandhi was quite a theatrical person uh, and Jinnah actually wanted to do theatre. Uh, Gandhi was quite the uh, uh, you know theatrical English gentleman or at least he wanted to be. And Jinnah... Uh, was actually even better than than Britons in that theatre. Jinnah actually wanted to uh, do Shakespeare for a career and not become a polit- politician necessarily. In 1892, uh, we have the milestone event of Dada Bhai Navroji, who had been in Britain since 1860s, becoming the first Indian to enter the House of Commons. And then, you know, we have um, Mancherji Bhavnagri uh, three years later and Shakurji Sakshatwala who is the, uh, so Mancheji Bhavnagri was a conservative leader, Dada Bhai Navroji, a labor leader, and um, I, I'm sorry, a liberal party leader, 
and uh, Shapurji Sakratwala, who comes later in the 1920s, a Labour and a Communist uh, MP in the House of Commons. And in between, we have people like Nehru, Jawaharlal Nehru, and Netaji Subhash Bose, and Dr. B.R. Ambedkar, who travelled to London. Now, I conceive of a non-dual relationship between London and India. A lot of people have asked me, why is not London an imperialist symbol in my eyes? Because I do not necessarily consider this London, this what I have called uh, Londonistan uh, provisionally, I do not consider this new emotional and cultural geography necessarily part of Britain. Or if I have to, I consider it a bridge between India and Britain. I have no doubt in my mind that uh, there was a conception of nationhood and Indianhood much, much before the British uh, e even had heard about India. India is an ancient civilization and will continue to be. And yet, the idea of the modern nation state, modern democracy and its pillars were in many ways cultivated in London, not Britain in, in, in general, but specifically in London, especially around central London, those very parts, I'd like to think, I'd like to argue, that were rebuilt uh, after the Great Fire, those very parts of central London where, where Peter Pope you know, must have been taken for a, a small hike or, or, or so. So it is, it is there that India was reimagined by the Netaji Subhash Boses, by the Gandhis, by the, by the Jinnas. And interestingly, at India, uh, at, at Highgate, we have a building called India House, which was founded by Shamaji Krishna Varma, which was the, uh, the residence of the famous or infamous, as you'd like to see, the notorious, let's say, uh, freedom fighter uh, Vinayak Damodar Savarkar. And it is in India House that around 1905-1906, V.D. Savarkar writes a book called The First War of Independence, which was the first, which was the first reimagination of what we used to refer to as the Great Mutiny as an Indian war. So the Great Mutiny, which was once upon a time imagined as a decentralized uh, ad hoc uprising in various places against the British forces was now given an Indian tonality, was now given an Indian face by uh, Savarkar and that book was banned. So I have to admit that uh, it, it, in many ways modern India and, and the seeds of uh, Indian democracy were reimagined uh, by Indian leaders in London. So I wanted to talk about one more, I'm going to use the word character in your book, because she definitely seems like a character, and that's Princess Sophia. Um, she gets involved in the, in, in the suffragette movement. It seems like a lot of the British royal family are complaining about Princess Sophia and how she's not kind of behaving properly. Um, but I guess, what's her story? How does she come to London? How does, and, and how does she get involved in, in, in these political activities? Well, uh, I mean, uh, her, she, she, lived, uh, she lived a very, very charmed life and a very special one indeed. Uh, so one of the, I, I, I feel extremely fond of this character, if I may call her a character, because I do look on the people uh, in my book as, as characters because of the, you know, the liberties that I've taken uh, about the facts or let's say, the, the lives that they led. I don't think I've tried to change or necessarily distort history 
in any way but the only thing is that i i've i've started becoming very fond of quite a few characters so in that sense i may have taken liberty sofia dulip singh is very very interesting and important uh, not only because she was a an indian suffragette leader in london and and britain fighting for the rights of uh, of women uh, for the for the vote campaign but also because she is the granddaughter of who was possibly the last uh, last recognized maharaja of punjab maharaja ranjit singh and his son the 11 year old dulip singh is the gentleman who gave who handed over or who was made to hand over the uh, infamous kohinoor diamond to queen victoria and the kohinoor uh, has had an equally charmed life it was uh, novelized by wilkie collins uh, into something called the moonstone but other than that the kohinoor generally was uh, looked upon with a great deal of fear and suspicion by uh, by pe- by people in uh, victorian england and and most people believed it to be cursed and whichever family it belonged to would would remain a cursed uh, uh, family so anyhow uh, princess sophia uh, was not uh, one of the superstitious folk uh, in fact she was she was deeply secular deeply democratic and and, and deeply on the side of of the oppressed uh, be that women laskers or uh, indian soldiers fighting on the war front so uh, the the episode that i think you you were almost referring to is when she wore uh, you know typically edwardian clothes and uh, and she was dressed for dinner when actually she attempted to commit suicide in front of uh, prime minister asquith's uh, car uh, in an episode i think it was just before the first world war sometime around 1912 1913 and then she was arrested and she was fined 3 pounds uh, for keeping an unlicensed carriage and five dogs and she refused to pay that fine she was taken to trial and the judge fined her 12 point uh, some pounds and uh, she refused to pay pay that up as well and she was part of the women's social and political uh, union uh, fighting for uh, women's vote and her brother interestingly also fought in france uh, during the first world war uh, for 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 britain so it's a family that has made tremendous contributions you know the the singhs dulip singh and sofia uh, sofia dulip singh and Her brothers have made tremendous contribution to the history of of Britain. So, and I, I don't think uh, uh, people are uh, as unfamiliar uh, about her name as they were maybe about ten years ago. So, so, th- so thankfully, a lot of consciousness has, you know, historical consci- consciousness has emerged in Britain. And um, and uh, well, yeah, Sophia Dulip Singh, uh, she's a, she's a diamond. really for me and uh, she she's she is much more than a diamond I, i have to say very very lustrous personality uh, very brilliantly cut and uh, extremely courageous woman a rare one indeed so i want to end with what happens after the second world war um around the time of independence around the time of partition how do these events affect the and i'm not going to use the word south asian how how do they then affect the south asian community in london in during and after um the events immediately after the second world war so in one manner of speaking if i can uh, shift focus to your first question uh we mm-hmm. we we end where we started uh, and and i say that uh metaphorically because i'm going to take you back to food 
uh, after the First World War, a, a stream of Lascars uh, began deserting their ships in, uh, you know, in, in London, in uh, around London, around uh, the the West India docks, uh, Tilbury, and so on. And uh, many uh, Indian restaurants uh, started sprouting in London between 1920 and 1940, especially after 1945, when the Eastern Europeans were uh, not as welcome in London for obvious reasons. I mean, there was the uh, right-wing uh, propaganda against them. And many of the Austrians and, and people of German origin and uh, other East Europeans who had thriving restaurants in central London had to, had to leave the city. So the outcome of these 25 years of the interwar period is restaurants like um, Bengal India restaurant opened by someone called Jobul Haq in Westminster, uh, a coronation restaurant opened by Kedanath Das Gupta on Gray's Inn Road, again Westminster, Dilkush Delight by Nogendra Ghosh, Darbar restaurant by Ashok Mukherjee, Gator Cafe by Chanu Mia. Now, I don't know if you can make out from the surnames, but quite a few of them are from Bengal. And if I, if I read the other names like uh, Kohinu restaurant by the Bahadur brothers, who are from Delhi, by the way, number 13, by Master Ayub Ali, um, Salute Hind by Niti Sen Dwarka Das, uh, again, Shah Jalal restaurant by Master Ayub Ali. Many of these people became uh, important leaders of the, of, of the Pakistan Welfare uh, Association and the, and the Muslim League in London, which was, which was founded by Saeed Amir Ali in 1900, uh, 1907 just a year after the Indian Muslim League was founded. Some of these were, some of these people would remain Indians by nationality. Some of them who came from the Silet region of East Bengal or today's Bangladesh uh, would then go on to become uh, East Pakistanis after 1947. And, and, these, and the traces of these restaurants actually remained. These remained as the vestigial roots of an older uh, culture of Indians and a new culture was getting established when after the 1950s and 60s, a new wave of you know, immigration to, to, to Britain started happening from Pakistan and India, especially in places like London, Birmingham, Leicester. Uh, and, uh, and after 1970s, there was also a, a, a thriving Gujarati population, uh, uh, not necessarily from Gujarat, but from Africa, uh, from, from Uganda and other places. So. Uh, we have the Bangladeshi uh, uh, immigrants, we have Indian immigrants, we have Gujarati immigrants from Africa, we have uh, Pakistani, Bangladeshi and Indian immigrants from Europe uh, who uh, make London a very, very cosmopolitan place. And around the Thatcherite regime, we have the resurgence of, of curry. So curry is not invented or Indian food is not invented uh, during Thatcherite times. These restaurants that were uh, you know that were founded in the interwar period they become the you know the the memorial cornerstones of the new generation of indians uh, struggling in the textile industry in the in the uh, construction business in the restauranteering business and now uh, by the end of the 20th, 20th century even in politics so we have over 40 uh, mem members of parliament of south asian origin and uh, uh, i think over 15 members of parliament uh, of Indian origin today. So some of the things that have happened of late uh, 
I have to admit, um, you know, they, 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 are, uh, they are causing certain uh, challenges for Indo-British relations. I think uh, this, this needs to move forward in the right direction. For instance, issues of the Kohinoor and the Jallianwala Bagh uh, massacre apology, which is, which is still pending, and free trade agreements between Britain and India and visa uh, challenges. So these need to be oiled. Uh, a little more effectively, but with so many Indians and South Asians in the in the British Parliament, I think it's been a wonderful roller roller coaster journey for the South Asian community and what was once the Indian community. Uh, and I hope my book uh, will uh, has and will uh, continue to remind people that uh, London was once, like you said, a galvanizing factor for uh, today's South Asians and who were once Indians. So I think that's a great place to end our interview with Arup K. Chatterjee, author of Indians in London, From the Birth of the East India Company to Independent India. Arup, I actually have a few final questions for you. Um, where can people find your work? And uh, what's next for you? I already mentioned your forthcoming book about the Indian railways in, 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 in the introduction. Um, but kind of what's your, what's your next project? I guess. Well, I, uh, my book is available on Amazon.in and Amazon.com, and it's uh, generally available, widely available in the United States and United Kingdom and uh, in, in, in Portugal and Denmark uh, and Australia. Uh, I, I hope I'm not missing out uh, 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 other, other localities, but please, please, I, I request you, I, I know I can't name all the nations possibly, but uh, if you can, if, if you can please log onto Amazon.com and look up Indians in London. Uh, I think uh, it would be accessible very easily. Alternately, you can you can uh, Google it, and uh, it definitely you'll find uh, more than one link. Uh, not only to how to purchase it, but but also you can find reviews of of the book. So far, reviewers have been uh, merciful and have have been celebratory. Uh, as for uh, the next project, it's a uh, it's a it's a slightly tricky question because um, the, the 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 next book, uh, at least in a titular capacity, if I, if I give out the subject, it's a very very controversial monument. Let me put it that way. And it is it is not it is not one of the temples or mosques or gurudwaras or churches that I am referring to. It's a very controversial Indian monument. But then the word monument uh, requires a great deal of definition. So it's a book on an on an archaeological subject, but also on a religious and spiritual subject, which has been become deeply politicized, and it's on an ancient civilizational uh, uh, monument, very very close to India, uh, the Indian heart, uh, and uh, something in which uh, the the British East India Company and then the Victorian regime and uh, the the global empire has also contributed greatly and at times has also contributed in a very benevolent capacity. So it's, it's a book for multiple kinds of readers. Many, many uh, people are uh, cultural stakeholders in this book. I know I'm all over the place except giving you the name of what this monument is, but I think you'll have to wait, Nicholas. So you can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R. I. Gordon. That's N-I-C-K-R-I-G-O-R-D-O-N. You can go to AsianReviewBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Facebook or on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia. That's reviews plural. And you can find other author interviews at the New Books Network at NewBooksNetwork.com. 
the ARB podcast can be found on all your favorite podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Rate us, recommend us, share us with your friends if you want to support us continuing to interview those writing in, around, and about Asia. Stay tuned for more info on who's coming up on the show. But before then, Arup, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Nicholas. The pleasure is mine.